Hi friend, my name is Ariel, friend and disciple of Jesus, communicator of the most amazing story of all time, the gospel. And welcome to episode two of the Free Indeed podcast. When I decided to record an episode about race, I felt a little bit daunted. It took me forever to write out a script. This is mainly due to the fact that I have been very vocal about racial injustice in the past. Naturally, I have a lot of ideas and thoughts about the issue and putting them into one episode of a podcast seemed a little bit overwhelming. I also wanted to put out something that is actually helpful, helpful in helping people understand racism, but also gives you some kind of tool to be part of making a difference. Something that goes beyond the I'm colorblind reason or I don't see color and actually giving us tools to have real conversations that affects change. Race within itself is not controversial at all. When God created different races and different cultures, he didn't do so by mistake and leave us with the task of figuring it out. There's something inherently valuable about every single race and every single people group. So the solution is not necessarily to no longer see race. You shouldn't have to completely eliminate an aspect of a person in order to accept them. Instead, the solution is for us to see race and no longer value or devalue people based on race. What I have finally made peace with though is that I cannot address hundreds of years of racial prejudice or speak on the experiences and pains of billions of people who bore the skin type that I do throughout history. So what I want to do is speak the truth of God's word over this ugly thing called racism and hopefully give a little bit of information to help anyone who's listening to understand its intricacies a little bit better. So a couple of disclaimers before I kick it off. Off the bat, I want to acknowledge that black and white are not the only two racial groups that must be involved in this conversation. However, in a world that is deeply entrenched with a white is right ideology, I do find that black people fall at the extreme opposite of that spectrum. And that is the reason for the black and white nature of racial conversations. Secondly, this episode is for anyone who has the heart to see justice become a reality in our generation. Anyone who wants to pursue reconciliation. I'm not here to prove whether or not racism still exists. It does. And it would have to be something somebody experiences on a daily basis in a very nuanced way for them to acknowledge. Lastly, I want to stress that there are many more intelligent and way more experienced and mature people who are dealing with the intricacies of this conversation. And I want to ask that if you fit into the category of people I refer to, the ones who want to be part of making a difference and who want to see racial reconciliation become a reality in our world, then it's important that you seek out these voices and be humble enough to listen. So with all that out of the way, let's start the conversation the podcast about race. Many of us watched a video that circulated where an African-American man named George Floyd was suffocated to death by a police officer. This video sparked various large protests across the USA and reignited the conversation about racial bias and racism. I always regret watching videos like that because of the graphic nature of it. But with this one, all I could do was stare at the face of the police officer every time it appeared in the shot. There was something cold and evil about it. There was no empathy or no regard for life. 
I remember saying out loud as I watched this video, this man looks like he has no soul. I said that loud a few times, over and over. And while watching it, it felt like I was looking into the face of something more sinister than just a racist or aggressive police officer. It felt like I was looking into the face of evil. Later that day, the verse Ephesians 6 verse 10 to 12 came to mind. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The battle we fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, and the rulers of this present age. When I looked at that officer's face, I saw more than just hate and evil. I saw a battle that could not be limited to one of flesh and blood. But that racism and the dehumanizing of another life runs much deeper than that. It also goes way beyond what we can do to stop it in the flesh. I realized that the attack on the Imago Day, the image of God, in the sons and daughters of God is the enemy's biggest low blow. Don't get me wrong, this does not negate the importance of standing up against injustice by taking action. That is not what I am saying. Speaking up for the oppressed is a biblical command and failure to do so is very offensive to God. So we must always do what we can whether it's voting or taking a stand or protesting. What I am saying though is that as Christians, the battle has to start on our knees. When it comes to battling racism, a good place to start is understanding what racism is. The Oxford Dictionary defines racism as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that that one's own race is superior. The belief that all members of each race possesses characteristics, abilities, or qualities specific to that race especially so as to distinguish it as inferior or superior to another race or races. A resource called Slow Factory Foundation divided racism into four dimensions. The first being institutional racism. This includes policies and practices that reinforce racist standards within a workplace or organization. Secondly, structural racism. This happens when multiple institutions collectively uphold racist policies. This is basically making reference to society. Thirdly, interpersonal racism. This is racist acts and microaggression carried out from one person to another. Lastly, internalized racism. This is the subtle and overt messages that reinforce negative beliefs and self-hatred within individuals. Earlier, I mentioned white is right ideology. This is more formally referred to as white supremacy. When we hear the term white supremacy, we think KKK, Nazis, burning crosses, and other extreme versions. But listen to this definition. Dictionary.com defines this as the belief, theory, or doctrine that white people are inherently superior to people from all other races and ethnic groups, especially black people, and are therefore the rightfully dominant group in any society. So, White supremacy is a multi-layered ideology. At its worst, it manifests itself as Nazism and KKK and etc. But its subtle manifestations can be just as troublesome. In its subtle form, 
it keeps the cycle of racism alive in ways that are less overt. For example, the pseudoscience that was recognized and respected for many years called race science. This so-called science suggested that there are physiological differences between white people's anatomy and black people's anatomy, and that these differences made white people inherently superior. The main lie was that white people were inherently more intelligent than black people, and that black people did not have the capacity to match the intelligence of white people. Although this is no longer explicitly taught today, it's certainly still implicit in today's thinking and teaching. For example, about two years ago, a white politician of one of the major political parties in South Africa tweeted something suggesting colonialism was not all that bad because of the technology and the advancements that have been produced as a result. Firstly, because it suggests that colonialism was an inevitable means of attaining these benefits, which is like saying rape is not all that bad if it produces a child who is a blessing. This undermines the victim and mitigates the action of the perpetrator, suggesting that they've performed some kind of good deed. Secondly, it's absurd, but not surprising, because it affirms the legacy of race science that proclaims that black people are incapable of innovating, creating, and developing things apart from the intelligence of white people. In fact, I've had conversations where people told me this outright. They'd say, if there were no white people in Africa, and if Africa wasn't colonized, we would all still be living in huts with no technology. In terms of the four dimension of racism that I spoke about earlier, this kind would fall under both institutional racism and internalized racism. I don't know who the originator of this quote is, but they said, history is always written by the victor. But I love the adaptation by a rapper named Propaganda who says, the story of the victor is the one that gets written. So the former suggests that the winner writes history and the latter suggests that whoever writes that they've won is believed to be the victor. Anyways, this form of racism is institutional because it is predominantly taught in most education systems. The idea that infrastructure, medical innovation and everything advanced was invented by white people. We certainly are not taught about the ancient civilization throughout Africa, apart from Egypt and its pyramids. Advanced infrastructure has been discovered in many non-Western countries and in many African countries that we would not know about because we were not taught about it. These things have simply not been taught. Without sounding like a conspiracy theorist, I encourage you to research into ancient African civilization. Spoiler alert, it is not limited to small mud hats and goats. I think of some infrastructure that to this day would easily be credited to the work of aliens before there being an admittance that the native Africans or South Americans would be capable of creating stuff like that. And this form of racism could also be seen as internalized because it reinforces the idea that black people are inferior among black people themselves. The fact that I have been taught the mud hat theory in school and had many conversations with both black and white people, not only is this ideology being taught, it is being believed as a result, upholding the idea that black people are inherently inferior in intelligence. I could go on with examples of white supremacy in our world, but it would take me forever. What I want to say though, is that just because systems such as apartheid and slavery no longer exist, does not mean that their legacies are non-existent. In fact, 
with those systems in place, there was a more visible and apparent source of the issue. But today, it's so dispersed that it's hard to fight against. I believe the only way to tackle it is to take stock of our own white supremacist mindsets. Whatever race we might be, we must hold ourselves accountable. We must also be willing to educate ourselves and those within our sphere of influence. Each of us must be willing to have these conversations. Although it's super uncomfortable, trust me, this is difficult to record with having to say white supremacy, black this, white that the whole time. But I believe that these conversations are very necessary. They're not only necessary to have interracially, but also within our own races and within our own circles. I think it's fair to say that for many of us, at least for those who are followers of Jesus who believe in the inherent value of humankind, want to see justice and reconciliation prevail. Some of the biggest obstacles I've experienced in having healthy conversations about race has been the following. Firstly, for black people and other non-white people, the hurt and anger of racism is pretty raw. And sometimes when we share our experiences of racism, our attempts to open up are dismissed as race baiting or otherwise making everything about race. Another issue is attempting to have conversations that lead to change rather than just conversations that are meant to vent anger. I'd say being unable to speak beyond your hurt can be quite an obstacle in conversations like this. And from white people, I've observed three main reactions to racial conversation that I perceive as an obstacle to change. These include the following. Firstly, dismissal. Denying that racism exists because they have not witnessed it themselves or trying to convince their black counterparts that their negative experience is not because of race. Secondly, something commonly known as white guilt. What is white guilt? I got the following points from an article on a site called racialequitytools.org. It explained what white guilt is pretty well. This article explained that there are three forms of white guilt. These include when white people feel guilty about the sins of their mothers and fathers or people who have gone before them. Secondly, the things that they have done that promote racism and white supremacy, especially when they were blind to its existence. The other one is feeling guilty about the sins of omission. And this is when they feel they are not doing enough or haven't done enough when they have witnessed racism or if they haven't called out their white counterparts who perpetuate racist ideals and white supremacy. The other one is the pains of benefiting from an immoral system and not feeling like you can really do anything about it. The writer of this article makes a profound statement. They tell us that when white guilt becomes the focus instead of the injustices of racism, it could lead to a self-absorption rather than change. So that's white guilt. The final obstacle I've observed has been the feeling of frustration from white people and then being disheartened because they believe that black people would rather shut them out and accuse them instead of allowing them to become allies and working together towards change. So what can we do to actually have conversations that bring change on both sides? In 2014, I had the privilege of traveling to the USA for a period of three months where I took part in a course through the University of the Nations. The school was about critical thinking and biblical worldviews. I thought we would be debating and finding biblical solutions to issues in the world, but instead I learned an incredible life skill, asking questions. During the course of that three months, we had to find news articles that made headlines every day. We had to read these articles and write down a hundred questions that you could draw from the article. A hundred whole questions. 
It's only towards the end of that three months that we're tasked with creating a make-believe organization that would tackle the issues. By the time the school was over, I had learned that asking questions make you more effective in finding solutions. This skill would be so beneficial if applied to conversations about race. Instead of being defensive, presumptuous, or shying away from conflict, let's ask questions to prevent us from overly regarding our own opinion or point of view, and let's listen to allow ourselves to see the issue from various perspectives. Doing this will help us to be part of the solution. I recently came across a verse that is relevant and really changed my thinking. It's in James 1, verse 19 to 20. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because, hear this, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. In the bid to seek racial reconciliation and justice, we must listen and be slow to get angry. This verse tells us that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We are people, and even in our seemingly righteous anger, we can be clouded by our emotions. In doing this, we can compromise a cause that is worth fighting for. A couple of years ago, I experienced a situation that makes this verse such a reality for me. I was sitting in a lecture hall, debating about racial relations with a group of pastors and people with experience in ministry. The disagreement was about racial diversity within the South African church. From my point of view, I had observed that the South African church still reflected racial segregation in the way it was run. The group of churches I was part of at the time still had factions that were distinguished by race. Although the reason for this divide was quite noble at the beginning. During the apartheid era, all of these so-called factions came under one umbrella so that the white group could assist the other races in owning property and starting churches. My argument was that although there was no intentional segregation, there was very little done to unite these churches after apartheid. The only churches that became multicultural were white churches where suburban black people and other races had started integrating into white churches. I argued that even so, when you looked into a crowd, you could pick out some black faces. But if you looked at the leadership and eldership of these churches, they were not representative of the multiracial claim they had as a church. Let me also point out that I was the only person of color in that room. And I say person of color instead of black because everyone else was white. My point was not meant to accuse anyone of anything, but I did point out that the room we were in perfectly reflected the issue I was raising. Anyways, the conversation got heated. There was much tension, a bit of yelling, and a lot of frustration. At that point, our lecturer, who also happens to be the dean, stepped in to defuse the tension. In a very wise and calm demeanor, he said to me, Ariel, God has really given you the heart for justice and the grace to communicate it very well. But I want to challenge you with this. In a world full of activists, rather choose to be a prophetic voice. In a world full of activists, be a prophetic voice. I'm telling you, those words have never left me. They hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment, and I sat with them, playing in my head for the rest of the day. If you think about what it means to be a prophet, originally, prophets were not predictors of wealth and prosperity as they commonly are known to be today. Prophets were the mouthpiece for the heart of God. They spoke against evil, but would hear the voice of God and declare his intention to bring light into those spaces. They were the catalysts for the change that God promised. They would challenge people to realign with the will and purposes of God. 
So this is the challenge I want to put out for believers who desire to see real change happen. Will you be an activist or a prophet? Being a prophet entails speaking the truth of God into the situation. Going beyond what the loudest, most prominent voices have to say, even if they are right. And instead, seeking the heart of God to effect real change. And seeking to see his kingdom come and his will be done in all situations of injustice, including racial injustices. To shift from a space of being an activist to a prophetic voice, I wrote down a couple of resolutions that I want to abide by during this time. Perhaps it will help to make a list of your own resolutions. What role can you play in being a prophetic voice in this world and play your part in ending racial prejudice and injustice? I resolve to pray and seek God's heart and desire for racial reconciliation and not lean on my own understanding. I resolve to not allow bitterness and pain to overtake my language or my actions. I resolve to listen, to never overshadow or underplay anyone's pain to validate my own. I resolve to be impartial about the violation of human dignity and stand in solidarity with those who experience injustice and to speak up wherever I can. I resolve to be present in someone else's pain and to listen and seek to understand. I resolve to not believe any narrative, opinion or worldview that undervalues me because of the color of my skin or confines me to live within the boundaries those evil narratives have created. I resolve to let racism and white supremacy stop with me. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you in the next episode.